Last evening I found myself contemplating this way of looking at the teachings that um, our teacher Ajahn Chah used to use and that is the concept of knowing the right amount of things. This is um, something that you hear a lot of in, in the tradition in Thailand and in the ways of talking about it uh, in, in the Thai language, Podi Podi or Hailuchak Brahman and the, these expressions for knowing the right amount. And you know, having lived there for a good number of years, it's something that one tended to just internalize and and almost take for granted. But anyway, last night I just found myself thinking about this and just registering how what a useful barometer this is for practice. Because it's so often the case that we're throwing ourselves out of balance because we don't know the right amount of something on the very obvious level of uh, not knowing not knowing the right amount of food yeah. <laughs> those who are new to the monastery or you're on retreat and the cooks are always going to great lengths to make this exceedingly yummy food which is about the last thing you need when you're on retreat and you eat too much and then you spend the afternoon you know, bobbing up and down on your cushion and you go, oh, did it again, ate too much, didn't know the right amount. And so tomorrow I'm not going to do that, I'm going to be more restrained. And then, of course, as soon as you're in the line and you're about, you know, the smell of the food and you're hungry, and then I'll be hungry in the evening. And, and so then you do the same thing again, you eat too much. And we don't know the right amount often with food. Or, or, you know, going shopping, how often is it the case? You know, you log into Amazon.com and end up getting more than you you know, planned on, more books than you really needed. You already haven't read the books that you've got. and yeah. Or talking. If only I just waited a bit longer before I opened my mouth and said that. <laughs> yeah. we, we talk too much. We talk too soon. And on other levels, uh, more subtle levels, the, the uh, inwardly, it often is the case that uh, we don't know the right amount of with things like how much how much energy to put into practice. You know, people come off retreat and all inspired and uplifted and say, I'm going to do an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, and seven days a week. Yeah. Well, sometimes people get worse than that. You know, two hours in the morning, and uh, and they got the and they're running on enthusiasm. And it doesn't last very long, and then they feel they failed. And what would have been more useful if they'd known the right amount would have been so, well, I'm going to do 40 minutes once a day, six days a week, give myself a day off, and help keep this thing fresh. And, and 
So knowing the right amount is a, a helpful way of orienting ourselves in practice, uh, contemplating uh, when we go off, and, and trusting that this is possible. Now, Ajahn Chah, uh, he elevated this concept of the right amount to actually the level of ultimate attainment. He said, if you know the right amount, you know the middle way. If you know the right amount, you know the middle way, the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is really knowing the right amount, knowing the right amount of our effort, knowing the right amount of our speech, knowing the right amount of mindfulness, the right amount of concentration. So, as I said, it's a useful concept to train ourselves to reflect around And to also to to look at how trust develops, how faith develops around this. Now, in the beginning, it's a concept, the right amount. You know, maybe you look at people who are well trained, well established in Dhamma, and and their life is balanced, their their being is balanced, their expression of of the realization of Dhamma is beautiful and and enlivening for people around them. And and so we can be inspired by that. And hopefully as we take that example inwardly and we examine and we investigate for ourselves, we, we grow in faith in this possibility that it's possible to know the right amount. You know, it's to, not to overdo it, not to underdo it, but to know the right amount of things. And, and this faith... What is it that we actually have faith in? What we're having faith in is the power of mindfulness, or in Pali, the word is a satipanya, you know, not just common and garden variety of mindfulness, but truth discerning, truth discerning awareness. Now, there's, a, there's the original common and garden variety awareness, which everybody has, but then when it's imbued, when it's educated properly with conventional right view, then it's conventional truth-discerning awareness. And that's a powerful tool. But what we have faith in is the full maturity of that, the maturation of that, which is the expression of a realized being, which is the unshakable truth-discerning awareness, which is always reliable. Now, you know, a lot of people, they just don't have this faith. They get around thinking that life is what you make of it and morality is is relative and optional. (laughs) It's not. Uh, according to the Buddha, who realized actuality, uh, there are immutable laws called the Dhamma, and this expresses itself in these realized beings as this truth discerning awareness. So, having faith in this is very important. Yeah. We have faith in this. Well, then we understand when we get it wrong, when we go out of balance, when we don't know the right amount of things. You know, when we speak too much, or we sleep too much, or we eat too much, or, you know. We think too much. You know, we throw ourselves out of balance. When the mind, when the mind is not an expression, when our life is not an expression of truth-discerning awareness, we suffer. We make mistakes, but we know why. So, all oh, right, that was what was going on there. You know, it's like if you don't have, if you don't have a, 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 a deformity in your seeing, you know, and, and it's daylight. You walk around and you see where you're going. You don't bang into things. You know, and, there's a, a burning fire in front of you and you don't walk into it because you, you, your eyes are working. If you're blind, if you've got a, a sight impediment, well, 
maybe there's a fire there, and you walk right into it. Now, what's the problem? You weren't seeing clearly. Well, as it is outside, so it is inside. That when we're not really seeing clearly, when we don't have truth discerning awareness, we keep making mistakes. When the pollutions, what technically called the kilesas, greed, aversion, and delusion, when these obstructions of mind are defining our experience of reality, then we make mistakes and we suffer. Thinking about this early this evening, I was reminded of that situation. Some of you will have heard me mention before when I before I joined the monastery as a layman, and I was I was snorkeling off the coast of what was then called Portuguese Timor. I, I don't know what the Portuguese ever did to help the Timorese, but in those days it was called Portuguese Timor, and, and I was staying on the beach in the, the north coast of, of Timor, Portuguese Timor, and off this gorgeous tropical island <laughs> with palm trees and nobody around, absolutely nobody on the beach. I'm, I'm off snorkeling there, and, and I can... I can see on the seabed this most gorgeous conch shell, the most beautiful conch shell, and it was just sitting there, and and I wanted a rose. You know, it's like there, it's right. I've never seen one of these. Coming from New Zealand, you don't have beautiful conch shells. You have other things, but not conch shells. And I thought, well, this would be a nice thing to have, and... And so I start flapping away, going down, but actually it was a bit further than I thought. And I got to the stage where I was starting to run out of air. And I thought, well, I can keep going and I can get the conch shell, <laughs> but I might not get back to the top again. And then what do you do? It got to the point where I realized I've got a choice. I let go and go back to the surface now, or I don't get back to the surface. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I wasn't that overcome by greed that I relinquished the having of the conch shell and I went back to the surface and I was um, pretty shocked by this experience of, um, of nearly uh, ending the whole thing and um, quickly ran ashore and shredded my feet on the coral and had an altogether unpleasant experience which turned the lovely tropical beach into something else altogether. This is what happens when we don't we haven't done our work we that where consciousness is not it's not truth discerning awareness that's operating and what's happening is this clouded awareness this obstructed awareness so if we have such a concept that it's possible and we have faith in this and this is not just an idea that we hang on to and then believe in but it's something that inspires interest enthusiasm investigation so you how do I, how do I realise what these people have realised? This truth discerning awareness that knows the right amount. Mm-hmm. Like when you're thinking about something. You know, I've got a dilemma: should I do this or should I do that? Yeah. We're thinking about buying a new property at the moment. Um, Penny sent us these photos today of this new property she went to look at. Twelve acres of forest and it's quite nearby and it's got a lot of good things going for it. But if we take it, then it's going to need more work and you're going to have to deal with the planning office and all the rest of it. So here you go, you've got this. Should we or shouldn't we? It's it's a quandary. And you can think about it, you can think about it. This is is encouraging, but then that is depressing. 
what's the right amount of thinking? How do you know the right amount of thinking? When do you reach the point where it's time to stop thinking? When do you, how do you know the point when you should stop thinking and choose to trust in silence? Hmm? Silence is a great resource. Trilance, silence is, is very nourishing of the heart. It's nourishing of insight, of understanding. But the temptation, the addiction that we have to always thinking, you know, trying to solve our problems by thinking, it's the kind of education we have, it's the, the culture that we have, the society conditions us to think that you always need more. You need more information, more security. How about, how about recognizing the right amount of security and the right amount of insecurity? A certain amount of insecurity is very inspiring, very energizing. A certain amount of insecurity inspires enthusiasm. How do we know the right amount? Well, it's really, this is an investigation that if we take it seriously, then we can uh, generate the energy to, to apply ourselves in our daily life. And so instead of just following our reactions you know, and willful you know, well, next time I won't eat so much, next time I won't talk so much, and hoping next time, so, so, you know, ask the question, what is the right amount? Yeah, what is the right amount? And we've got to be daring. Yeah? We've got to be willing to go without. Like, for instance, the, how much security do I really need? When should I trust and when should I think and try and find security? When should I trust in not knowing and when should I look up the books and try and get an answer. Because we're always looking in the books and trying to get an answer. We just get addicted to virtual understanding, which is okay to a certain point. But if we tolerate, if we allow ourselves to tolerate uncertainty, if we know the right amount of certainty and uncertainty, then actually that can take us deeper. So then we're faced with the question of this adventure, this investigation, this daring to go without, like daring to go without some of the food. You know, don't eat so much. How much food do I need? Well, the only way to find how much food we should eat is to don't eat so much. How much sleep should I have? Well, go without some sleep. Don't sleep so much. Um, but that could, we can go off in both directions there in our there's this, uh, this wise saying in the forest tradition, eat little, sleep little, speak little. If you go to Watanana chart and you see it pinned up on the trees there or framed on the wall or whatever, eat little, speak little, sleep little. And uh, if we don't know the right amount, if satipanya is not functioning properly, then we just grasp that. So that sounds very wise when we grasp it as an ideal. And so we're busy eating little, sleeping little, speaking little. And you're getting skinnier and you're going more crazy. And actually what's needed is you need a good sleep. You know, sometimes idealistic meditators forget the healing power of sleep. You know, sometimes that's exactly what's needed. You know, stop starving yourself of sleep and just have a really, really good rest or eat more. You know, sometimes you know, the refined states of meditation that can come when you're not having to deal with processing food can be very inspiring, energizing, and so you, then you cling to the pleasure, 
you don't know the right amount of pleasure, the right amount of happiness that comes from meditation, and so then we say, eat less, eat less, eat less. That's what it says, eat little, sleep little, speak little, until we're emaciated. Or talking, speaking. You can get stuck in practice and you really don't know what you're doing. You say, well, I should depend on myself. The Buddha said you've got to learn to depend on yourself. And the great teachers, they all went off into the forest or up into the mountains and they depended on themselves. And and the Buddha, he sat under the Bodhi tree and made my blood dry up and my bones break before I get up from this spot. And say, well, if you had the accumulated virtue of the Buddha or the great Arahants, then maybe you could come out with something like that. But if we don't know the right amount, if Satipanya is not really working, truth discerning awareness is not really working, then we go off. And sometimes with the difficulties that we experience in meditation, we need to talk to somebody. Speaking a little is not what's needed. Actually speaking more is what's needed. Sometimes we need to find a friend who we trust and just in the act of hearing ourselves speak about our limitation, we have a shift in perspective. You know, they didn't even say anything, maybe. You know, we just needed to speak about it to somebody who wasn't going to judge us, somebody who could listen, somebody who had empathy, you know, who could just listen to us and receive us. And then in that act of speaking, we get a whole new relationship to our difficulty, our so-called obstruction, and we can move on. So this, uh, this adventure into um, getting to know the right amount, the willingness to go without some of these things that we think we need, yeah, it's risky. And so the question is, how do we protect ourselves? How do we protect ourselves on this dangerous journey? It is dangerous. You know? People go off on the spiritual life. Yeah. Over and over again, you see people going crazy on retreats and and uh, because they don't know the right amount. So how do we protect ourselves? Yeah, well, uh, this is something that I think a, a week or so ago I was, I was talking about just this point and, and mentioned how, how our precepts protect us. And in a few minutes, uh, Paul here is going to formally take the, the refuges and precepts. Uh, this is a... This is an intelligent move. This is not just club membership. This is not just what you do if you want to become a Buddhist. This is an intelligent way of orienting our hearts and minds on the life journey so that we are actually setting up protections. You know, in a public situation with a teacher you respect, formally taking the refuges and precepts <coughs> and then living by the refuges and precepts is a form of protection. And it works. And similarly with the other point that I mentioned was uh, Dhamma friends, spiritual friends. People, again, that we know we can trust. People that when we're down and we're struggling and we're in a bad mood and we're we're suffering, that they don't don't abandon us and say, you're a loser, I just want somebody who's cracking jokes. And that's not a real friend. Uh, Or people that... We know that we can talk about the difficulties that we're having and they know how to listen to us. And they know how to be honest with us. When we're overly pleased with ourselves, they know how to tell us in a way that we can hear. 
in the right time, right place, right words, right motivation <coughs> is the expression of, a <coughs> of true friendship. So protecting ourselves on this journey of inquiring into knowing the right amount uh, by really cultivating the precepts. Yeah? Again, the precepts are not just a good thing to do. They are good, but the more than that, they're also an intelligent device for cultivating a reliable, not a deluded sense of safety, but a reliable sense of, of safety and protection. And also uh, study. Study protects us. You know, we can we can be inspired by the possibility of awakening and and unshakable realization of Dhamma and and getting enlightened and all that. It can be very inspiring. But if our thinking, if our understanding is not in line with truth, our enthusiasm, the energy comes from enthusiasm, can go right off in the wrong direction. So it is important to 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 do the right amount of study, to study the teachings of the Buddha. And not just to study the teachings of the Buddha, because we can get them wrong. You know, we can even misunderstand the teachings of the Buddha. All sorts of interesting misunderstandings arose in some of the early translators of the Buddha's teachings. A hundred years or so ago, there was all these European scholars translating from the Pali uh, into English and whatever other languages, the Buddha's teachings, and they, they jumped to all sorts of false assumptions. Yeah. Some of them decided that the Buddha was teaching about an ultimate self. Atta samapaniticca. One self rightly directed. There you go, the Buddha's talking about. Atta samapaniticca. One self rightly directed. Ati atanonato. You've got to learn to depend on yourself. How can you depend on somebody else? Yeah. The Buddha's talking about self. And so some of these early translators were holding this up. Here's the evidence. The Buddha, just another Hindu, talking about self. And, well, if you... Uh, take your initial deluded understanding or confused understanding as valid, well, then you can invest all your energy into something that's not taking us in the direction of truth-discerning awareness, but just deeper into confusion. So not only do we study the Buddha's teachings, but we also associate with and study the commentaries, the explanations of living, realized beings. Finding the teachers who've done the training, who've made the sacrifices, made the investigation and arrived at realisation themselves. And again, fortunately these days, we have the huge good fortune of just going on to Google and type in these great teachers that are around and you can study them and listen to them and, and help us get the right appreciation of the Buddha's teachings. And Now, if we don't do this, as I said, we can uh, just be following our wrong thinking and not going in the direction of increased well-being. So study and then the practice. Of course, we're all familiar with the, this presentation that uh, is often talked about, pariyati, patipati, patiwedi, that first we align our thinking with that which is reliably accurate and then there's the practice. And they're completely different dimensions, just like reading the road code is a very different experience from learning when to put your foot on the accelerator and take it off the clutch. 
you know, or driving on the left-hand side of the road or driving on the right-hand side of the road. You know. Or the experience of cooking. You, know, you can read a recipe book or you know, something, somebody's written down a recipe for how to make even something simple like pancakes. I remember this friend I went, went with a couple of years ago and, and uh, staying up way in Scotland and he took all the ingredients for pancakes. He never cooked pancakes before and thought it would be very easy. He just ended up making a big mess and throwing the whole thing in the bin. You know, even something as simple as pancakes. You know, having a recipe, if you don't actually know how to get the frying pan, you know, the griddle, just the right temperature, you know, how, to, how to do it, we're not going to have pancakes. We didn't have pancakes on that occasion, which was a bit of a pity, but... That's what happens <laughs> if all we've got is the pariyati, if all we've got is the theory, if all we've got is the ideas, if all we've got is the study. It's got its place, absolutely, study's got its place. As I said, if our thinking is not in line with reality, we can waste a lot of energy and a lot of time. So we do the study, but the practice is the next step. And the practice, as I said, is a completely different dimension from the study. And there needs to be a willingness on this adventure, this investigation, into finding out what is the what is the right amount. How much concentration should I be doing in practice? In the suttas it seems to talk about the jhanas, but then I've met some of these concentration people, and I don't know. I'm not sure, you know, how I feel about some of their advice. You know, I get a funny, funny sort of feeling, and. And should I trust my feeling or should I trust the scriptures or should I, you know, should I just go and see another teacher? Well, then you just get another opinion. How much should I trust other people and how much should I trust myself? Well, what does all that say? What all that says is I don't know what I'm doing. That's what it says. I don't know what I'm doing. From the level of pariyati, you say, oh, I've got to find out what I'm doing. I should know what I'm doing. And that's sort of true on the level of theory. But when it comes to practice... What's profoundly important is that we are willing and able to know when we don't know. To have the humility, to have the subtlety of attention, to be able to say, this is what it's like to not know what I'm doing, and not push past it. The addiction to certainty, the addiction to feeling sure, not knowing the right amount of feeling sure, feeling safe, feeling confident, not knowing the right amount, being addicted to this, means that we can't benefit from the open, spacious sense of wonder that can come when we admit that we don't know what we're doing. A lot of people in the spiritual world, they're so greedy and addicted to the false security of thinking they know what they're doing that they actually never let go of that level. It's like when you climb a ladder, you know you've got to let go of one rung before you can go to the next one. You can't have your feet on this rung and go to that rung. You've got to actually let go and to go up. Yeah, well, it's like that. We've got to let go of our synthetic security and dare. But this daring is mindful, wise, skillful daring because we've got our precepts and we've got our Dhamma friends. And we've studied, so we can afford to make this daring gesture of going into the spaciousness, the openness. That means we can tolerate 
the terrible feeling of not knowing what we're doing. As a uh, chap in America, a doctor, uh, he's got a very, very demanding job, a cancer specialist in a big hospital in America, and he gets in touch from time to time and talks to me about his practice. And he was telling me just yesterday how, how, how utterly intolerable it, it can feel on one level to not know how to make himself peaceful. He's been meditating for years and years, this guy, and he's got this really important job dealing with these terminally ill, well, a lot of them, terminally ill cancer patients. And his practice is at a point where he just doesn't, nothing works. The tricks don't work. He said it's that can't go forward, can't go back, can't stand still. Really can't. And part of him knows that actually this could be very creative, but it really stinks. You know, it's really not, not a nice experience. But he's prepared himself enough. He has enough preparation, enough skillful understanding to be able to hang in there, to stay with it. Uh, I, really, I really respect that. This is where meditation becomes work. You know, in the early stages of meditation, yes, there's a lot to do with relaxation. Absolutely. Yeah. People, some people are so greedy for insight that they, they bypass the level of relaxation and they bring all their tension and uptightness into meditation and just make the neurosis even worse and diff- more difficult to deal with. So yes, early on, relaxation is it. That's what we should be doing. Yeah. But relaxation, concentration, generating focus, and then opening up into the agonizing, spacious reality that I don't know what I'm doing. But tolerating that. If you want a good barometer for practice... Want a good barometer for our practice? Not how many amazing insights that I'm having and how confident and sure I am, but how tolerant are we of uncertainty? Can we? Is that what? Is that what's increasing? Truth discerning awareness is capacity to tolerate uncertainty. Well, you know the books don't tell you that. You know, the books don't tell you. But then the books are not supposed to tell you. The books are supposed to give you the theory, the ideals, you know, to get us started. And then when we practice, well, it's something else altogether. And, of course, it takes resolve. It takes the willingness to begin again, over and over and over again. Again, I was mentioning a few days ago when Mark, Anagarika Mark, was taking his precepts before he fell over and broke his shoulder and experienced excruciating pain. I was busy giving a talk about beginning again. And since then, I think he's had a few <laughs> a few opportunities to begin again. When we went to visit him in hospital, he, he was making all sorts of rude, unpleasant noises, uh, which, of course, given the level of pain he was in, it was all understandable. But it wasn't, you know, it's not what you want. You know, you're a groovy spiritual seeker. You want to be all cool and radiant. Well, he wasn't cool and radiant. He was a mess. But the wonderful thing was that he does know how to begin again. I just took too much morphine. and I've been stoned for, for the whole morning. This afternoon, I'm going to take less. How do you know the right amount of morphine to take? Well... You know, when you've got a broken shoulder, you're in excruciating pain. There is a certain amount of morphine. The rest of us, we don't need any morphine. Uh, but there is a certain amount of morphine. And you get it wrong, 
you don't take enough. You know, you're overly idealistic and said, oh, no, I shouldn't be taking morphine. I shouldn't be taking sleeping pills. And I hope you don't mind me talking about you, Mark. But uh, <laughs> he's a good piece of visual aid. <coughs> that, um, you know, how much sleeping pills should you take? Oh, I shouldn't take sleeping pills. I'm a spiritual seeker. Well, take some sleeping pills, for goodness sake. You know, sleep is good. Okay, it's not real sleep. It's not real sleep. But at least your muscles might relax a little bit and the blood might flow and it might just help the healing. You know, hundreds of years of, of study and investigation by these seriously committed medical professionals, they might actually have a bit of knowledge. And so it is worth paying attention to them. But if we get it wrong, what do we do? We take too much morphine or we eat too much or we speak too much or we speak too little, whatever. We get it wrong, we go out of balance, we don't know the right amount. What do we do? We begin again. And so it does, it really takes resolve. And not just resolve for a few minutes or a few days or a few weeks or a few years, but for lifetimes. That's the kind of resolve that is required. A firm determination that I resolve to stay with this practice of a willingness to begin again, to come back to this moment with my faith and commitment to realisation of Dhamma, however many lifetimes it takes. And so with that commitment and also an appreciation of the need for renunciation, you know, these are of course all terms that you know you don't they don't get used very much these days. But the Buddha talked about them. The great beings talked about them. Yeah. Renunciation is the is the respect, the adm- admiration, the admiration or adoration even, for the capacity to let go of that which is not really benefiting us in spiritual practice. In the Dhammapada, there's a verse which says that it's wisdom which enables us to let go of a lesser happiness in pursuit of a greater happiness. And so stuffing ourselves with food just because it looks good, that's the lesser happiness. And we let go of that in pursuit of the greater happiness, which is the clear mind in the afternoon. Or the impulse to just tell somebody what you think about them, letting go of that happiness in pursuit of the greater happiness of a mind that's free from remorse and the inner strength to know that we can exercise restraint. So in this uh, consideration, investigation of coming to know the right amount, uh, being in a hurry doesn't help. Being afraid of uncertainty doesn't help. Having good friends does help. And a willingness to begin again. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Sadhu